Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. 
They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Patty, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Always my pleasure. Well, it is really, really cool to have you here because we had you uh, on the show back when we were called Blogcast FM, and uh, your work has always resonated with me. I absolutely love your writing, and so I thought, you know, what better way to honor it than to bring you back to the show? Uh, so on that note, uh, given that we have lots of new listeners and it's been probably close to two years since we've had you here, uh, can you tell us a, a bit about yourself, your story, your journey, your background, and how that has brought you to everything that you're up to in the world today? I will. And you know, it's interesting. You have asked me to be back on at a very, very interesting time in my own evolution. And so I'll uh, hopefully have a chance to talk about that, or I would love to sort of figure that out yeah. <laughs> as we're talking. Um, but to get me where I am now, I started my career working in nonprofits in DC and headed up international and diversity divisions. Uh, so I had a chance to jump into um, a global viewpoint. Uh, then and even earlier than, than when I lived in Sri Lanka as an exchange student. So all of that has informed my look at um, inclusion and uh, diversity issues. And I did a lot of work in corporations around diversity issues. And about eight years ago, I, I turned to look at my own life a little bit. My stepfather had just died 37 days after he was diagnosed with lung cancer, and that really woke me up. I knew um, that I wanted to change my life in significant ways because we never know, you know where we are on our 37-day journey. So I uh, still work in organizations, but I switched my writing. I started writing in a voice that felt much more myself. It felt much more personal. And the reason I did that is because I realized if I had 37 days to live, I would want to leave behind my stories for my kids. And not just the pretty stories, but the stories about what I fear and how I felt vulnerable and how I failed in some ways. I wanted them to see me as a human being, a full human being. And that writing was on my blog called 37 Days and then became the catalyst for the six books that I've written in the last eight, eight or 10 years that are really about living more mindfully and more intentionally, uh, paying attention to the idea of having 37 days. And, um, you know, it sounds cliche, but really following your heart and, and understanding what has meaning for you. And for me, as for you, I believe it really is stories. You know, the, 
it's often said that the shortest distance between two people is a story, and I think your work is really showing that in a huge, huge way, and hopefully mine is too. Hmm. All right, so one of the things that I, I want to do um, is to talk about the things that we didn't get to talk about last time, and, and that is to look sort of at your really early formative experiences, sort of the journey before the journey, childhood, and the things that kind of put you on the path that you ended up going down. Mm. Okay. There are some um, points that I can look at and say that was uh, a moment of significance in my life. And I think we can all do that. If we draw a picture of our life story, there are going to be some little dots along the way or stars or whatever you want to draw. And um, one of those had to do with this uh, living in Sri Lanka that I mentioned. I was born in a very small southern town and grew up in a pretty... um, a pretty southern environment, you know, we, there wasn't a lot of diversity in the town, so I wasn't exposed to a lot of difference um, growing up, and my parents and grandparents had been raised in a very different time than the time that I inherited um, by the time I was born, so going to Sri Lanka, uh, and I, by the way, I had, been, I had asked to go to Germany because I knew where Germany was on the map, <laughs> At the time I was selected to go to Sri Lanka, I had never been on an airplane. So that might give you some idea of uh, the small town environment in which I grew up. When I got to Sri Lanka, my whole way of looking at the world changed completely because I realized this place, I lived in a very small village. We did, you know, we walked everywhere. Um, This place could not be more different from where I lived excuse me, from where I live and where I've grown up. And yet, the the things that the people cared about were exactly the same. And that was a huge moment. I also had a huge moment getting on the plane and flying there because I realized, and when I say this, people think, oh, she's so simple-minded. But what I realized as the plane took off and got higher was that the things that I really worried about, like who's going to ask me to the prom or whatever you worry about when you're 16, became really, really tiny because they were just little dots from that perspective. And then I realized when I landed that they got big again and that I needed to find a way in my little teenage head to live between those two places, to recognize the value of perspective and to live in the space that I'm in and not in this liminal space between places. So um, that was really a a point, a moment of recognition for me. Another moment that I've talked to a friend about yesterday that has had a huge impact on how I have seen myself in the world um, and and has a a huge impact on how I am changing that or or thinking about that now was that, um, how does tell this story? My parents always said to me a couple of things. One was, you can do anything you want to. And I really took that to heart, and I still do believe that. The downside of that might be, an unspoken second part of that sentence might be, and you'd better. And I think that leads to conversations with yourself about needing to achieve or needing to earn. And so... Push pause on that. That's one piece of it. The other piece of the message that I got, and I know it was said with the greatest of intentions, 
um, was you're smarter than some people around you and you need to really dampen that down so that you don't make them feel bad about themselves. That is a message that I've only really recently begun to understand how that has an impact on how I am in the world. And we can talk more about that if you want. But that, those are moments that I think all of us can look back and say, what are those messages that we got? And how do they play out? And how can we acknowledge them and embrace them and not reject them and not reject the people who gave us those messages, but really learn from them? Uh, so that's where I am right now. You know, that's the point of embracing and acknowledging and deciding making clear about the choices and opportunities I have moving forward to live into a different story. Hmm. So let me ask you this. Do you think that these moments of significance are things that we can only recognize in retrospect or do we recognize, is it possible to recognize they're happening uh, when they are? What a great question. Um, I think, I think in some ways we can recognize them as they're happening if we are fully present in that moment. And I think we discount the capacity that very young people have to do that. Um, I would, had I not had that experience myself, I would have discounted the kind of revelations I felt in Sri Lanka because the child was 16. Do you know what I mean? And so I think we, um, you know, one thing that I take from that question is how do we underestimate our capacity to really get something? And the other piece of that question for me is do we need to intellectually get something in order to really get it? Could we feel something in our bodies that is um, a real sign to us that, whoa, something is happening here and I don't have the words, like I'm not clever enough at this moment to use language to describe that, but something shifts. Um, something that's ineffable happens to us. And I think we discount that because we love to be clever and use language. And, you know, as writers, you and I both know how <laughs> yeah. seductive that is. <laughs> um, so I think it's, it's a both and. Yes, if we're present to ourselves and... Yes, if we don't buy into the ageism that says, you're too young to really understand this, then I think as a young child, we can have extraordinary experiences of knowing and of recognition. Do you think these moments of significance can be brought about if we feel that we haven't had them in our lives? Well, I mean, I don't think you can, you can um, pre-plan what the significance is, but you can certainly put yourself in positions of, in a position of not knowing. And I think that's really where learning and these kinds of uh, revelations can come about. And I, you know, I think as a whole, we don't like to be in places of not knowing. We like to be smart. We like to know, and we like to be able to talk about what we know. So to really go to an edge, which is a place of not knowing, um, is difficult for us. It's not our first impulse. We want to be able, like in school, to raise our hand and say, yeah, I know the answer to that one. So it's much less likely that we would raise our hands and say, oh, yeah, today's the day I want to be completely uncomfortable. Like, I don't want to know. Um, so I think it's a learned behavior to fling yourself into situations where you don't know and you can't know. Um, I think it's also really important, and I take this from the work that I've done that uses experiential process in even corporate training where 
there's a madness to what we're asking people to do, but there's a thread of knowing that we allow them to find out, not me as teacher. And that's an embodied knowing. So when you come to a hot place, you know, when you come to a place that feels uncomfortable or like an edge, you have two choices, I think. You can either uh, judge or you can learn, but you can't do both things at the same time. So you have to choose. Am I going to judge? And where we go first in judging is ourselves. Oh, my God, I'm an idiot. Why did I say that? Why don't I know that? Um, And the second is we judge other people. And we go to that, that's our first impulse, and that's okay, we're human. But we have to notice that first thought and work on the second thought. And hopefully the second thought is, I have to lay down this judgment of myself and other people in order to actually learn something from this situation. And that's also hard, you know. We, we are a culture that's driven on drama. We love drama, and we love to fix things, and we love that level of conversation. And I I was just talking on Facebook today about my lack of patience at this point with even my own um, capacity to go straight into drama (laughs) as a, you know, as opposed to going to a conversation that's a little elevated and looks at choice and opportunity. And the choice that we always have when we're in a hot spot or a place of discomfort is to learn if we can get ourselves there, if we can get over the, the judgment. The other thing the judgment does, I will say this as I'm thinking about it, the thing that the judgment does when it pops up, it is a a little radar that says, hey, you're on the verge of learning something here. Don't judge, learn. And I think that's really helpful to see judgment as a positive indicator of the capacity of being in a spot where you could actually learn something. Wow. So one of the other things that you said uh, is when you took off on that plane, the things that you worried about became little dots. And when you landed again, they became big again. Mm-hmm. And it was learning to live in that space between mm-hmm. that was one of, you know, sort of a, a, your big moments of significance. How in our own lives do we start to live in that space between? You're really good at this. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, I'm, I'm just battling my own demons most of the time, to be honest. <laughs> Every question has a question beneath it. Um, let's see. I believe that we, again, have to put ourselves into a place where our perspective is shaken up, where we can't rely on the perspective that we've always had, so that we can begin to see that when I see something going clockwise, you truly and honestly see it going counterclockwise. And that if we are screaming, it's clockwise, it's counterclockwise at each other, we're kind of missing the point. So living in that space between, first of all, I love liminal spaces. I think liminal spaces are some of the most powerful places that we can be in. Um, I wrote a story once about this, uh, about monkey bars, you know, that you have to let go of one of the bars to get to the next bar. And there's that moment, that really thrilling moment where you're letting go. And so I think in terms of living in that space in between, we have to, first of all, not judge the other perspective, but try and learn from it and be able to let go of our own monkey bar and, and feel that sense of exhilaration when you're flying. You know, you are truly between these two spaces. And I think liminal spaces are just potent. You know, we're not stuck in a story 
that we've been telling ourselves about ourselves over and over. Or, as I mentioned before, a story that somebody else is telling us about ourselves. You're too smart. You need to dumb it down. You need to not outshine people around you. Um, it gives us the opportunity when we're in that liminal space to let that go. Shedding is big for me right now. <laughs> you know, how, how deeply can I let go uh, is one of the questions I have tattooed on my arm. Because I think the capacity that we have of letting go of that monkey bar without truly knowing if we can reach to the next one, that's where the power is. That's where we're at our most potent. And that's hard. It's really, really hard. It might also be addictive, you know. It might. <laughs> so I think there's a balance even between that, you know, to, to acknowledge that um, we are on the ground. And this is beautiful where we are. And, and to be truly where we are as opposed to wishing we were somewhere else. The last book that I did was on loss. And there were three parts that I think are relative to your question. There were three kind of um, processes that I outlined for people to go to think about going through in terms of in times of loss. The first was embrace what is because we spend a lot of time wishing what is wasn't, you know, that regrets about what should have been, what we wish had been. And think about it in terms of any kind of loss. It could be death. It could be betrayal by a friend. It could be a loss of a business. It could be losing your job or your hat, whatever, any kind of loss. Embrace what is, at this moment, what is, and embrace it as opposed to resist it. We have that choice. The second piece of that was to honor what was. A lot of times, I think when we lose something, we denigrate it. You know, we, it's like people who divorce and all their friends say, oh, he was lousy to begin with. That's not really helpful. You know, honor what was. This was beautiful at one point. I think we can honor that. And then the third one is kind of the monkey bar, which is embrace what will be, whatever it is. Embrace what that what it, what will be, um, as opposed to fear it, as opposed to stay stuck. And so I think, you know, even relative to your question about liminal spaces, that's a pretty good pattern to, to follow. You think letting go of the monkey bar is uh, something some people are inherently built to be able to do, or is it something that can be cultivated? I think it can be cultivated. I do think that it's easier for some people. I, you know, I operate uh, really easily in a place of letting go, and I have to really remember that other people don't. And I find my job is to go to where they are and not at the other end of the monkey bar saying, what's wrong with you? You're an idiot. Go to the next bar, you know? So I always tell the story when I'm teaching about, you know, if I invite a group of people to my house for dinner, is it, and they're lost, is it better for me to give directions from where I am or from where they are? And I think a lot of us as teachers stand where we are at the end of the monkey bars and try and give directions from there. And that's not helpful. You have to go to where the person is and lead them through all the turns to get where you are. And I think that's a major point for all of us to think about when we're frustrated with somebody, when we're thinking, why don't they know this? Um, really go where they are. Yeah. That's a beautiful place to go. You know, it's interesting as I, I listen to you say that, uh, you know, one of, I've had a handful of friends who tell me that, you know, the, that I have an exceptional bias towards action because I just produce. 
And I think, you know, when I hear you say that, I realize how much I take that for granted. And mm-hmm. it drives me crazy when I see other people who I feel don't have a bias towards action. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's judgment. You know, mm-hmm. that's where you and I have to stop ourselves and say, okay, I'm judging. Mm-hmm. I'm judging. Um, and we also block ourselves in that way. We block ourselves from learning, for sure. We also block ourselves from engaging in a meaningful way with the person we're frustrated with and trying to figure out where are they, um, which I think is an important part of the equation, too. So one thing that's, that's really interesting to me, and I've, I've asked this question to numerous people in, in various forms, it seems that crisis is always the catalyst for major change in our lives. Uh, you know, in your case, 37 days. And I am wondering if the crisis is necessary or if we can bring it about without the crisis. I did a bunch of work for um, Pepsi and their, their CEO at the time, we got to be good friends. And he said to me one time, uh, we don't have a burning platform. We were do- I was doing diversity work with them. And he said, we don't have a burning platform. There's nothing, there's no lawsuit. There's no, you know, thing that's driving this. There's no cat crisis, as you're, in the words that you use. Would we be better if we had one? And I said, you know, in my experience, and this was particular to diversity in my conversation with him, but I think applies to other things, people do things for two reasons. One is vision, or the other one is doom. And... You know, being in a place of vision is there's far less skin on the ground than there is in a place of crisis. Um, So how do I tease apart what are the elements of crisis that force me to move forward? And how can I create those elements in a healthier way? Um, And and I always think that way, like, what? okay, I get that crisis helps. What is it about crisis that helps? And is there a different way to, um, to get there? Mm-hmm. So, you know, my, it, it is sitting down with that question of what are the attributes of crisis? And certainly one of those is pain, you know, vision or pain. And pain is powerful. So how do I get to a place of movement forward without pain? Yeah, somehow pain and our evolution always seem to go together. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They do, and and it's powerful. Pain is powerful. I, you know, this last four years for me have been an exercise in pain, and it has been a catalyst for me to just now begin to really seriously question the stories that I'm telling about myself, about writing, about business, and so I get that pain will do that, and I'm trying to figure out, okay, what do I learn from these years, and how do I move forward in a healthy way without the same kinds of things that have brought me here. And I think a lot of us are doing that. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods 
for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community. And that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Well, would you be willing to talk about it in more depth? Oh, sure. I'm happy to. Um, let's talk specifics. I mean, I think that, you know, it's always interesting to me. And I, I can't help but wonder if I keep getting an answer to this question only because I'm asking it. <laughs> or because it's something that every single person just goes through sort of the dark night of the soul or, you know, whatever you might want to call it. Uh, mm-hmm. But I'm really interested in hearing, you know, in more depth about yours, uh, you know, what you've taken away from it and how you've shifted out of it. Okay. Yeah. I, um, I have only recently recognized that I have had an extremely intense four years And I'll outline some of the elements of that, uh, not because I think the particulars are important, but because I think the the additive uh, process of all of those things leads me to where I am now. Um, In the last four years, my uh, longtime business associate, uh, we were magical together. Um, And without any particulars, there was what I perceive and what others perceive as an act of betrayal in a significant way. Um, and so the end of that long time partnership, um, my youngest daughter was diagnosed with autism, which, um, is significant. Um, the month after that, my husband was diagnosed with cancer 
two friends in in that time frame, two close friends died. Um, uh, I, I got another business partner really to manage the business part of my business and ended up with uh, around $100,000 lost. And so the financial piece of this is really significant, but also the psychological piece, which is I must be really lousy at judging people. I must be really naive. Um, and so there was a lot of negative self-talk about how could I have gotten myself into this situation? And, and I really realized in the process of asking my, myself that question that that was a story that I told myself that I was the cause of the, these things because I made bad decisions. So I've spent a lot of time uh, re, refocusing that story. And the story truly is, I trust what you say to me, and I will never stop trusting what people say to me, but I will trust and verify <laughs> from now on um, what people say. So really dark four years, and and there were other things that happened in the, in the course of that four years, but those are big, significant, significant things, and had a huge impact on me as a human being. You know, I... I was in a huge depression as a result of these things. I couldn't focus. I couldn't move forward. I, uh, it was a, a place of real paralysis. I was hanging on for dear life on that one monkey bar, completely it, it, unable to move forward. And it's only in the last month that I have uh, refocused and I got help from somebody who... Um, diagnosed me with PTSD as a result of these four years. And I think having somebody reflect back to you, you know, this is hard. You don't have to just put your head down and barrel through it the best you can. You can get help for this. That was huge for me because it also uncovered another story, which is I don't need help. It's hard for me to accept help. So I'm kind of laid open, you know, in a space that says I do need help. And uh, here's the story. That has been really powerful for me because as much as I can talk about uh, vulnerability and shame and all the things that come along with that story, it's another one to really experience what happens when you say, this is my story. This truly is the dark story um, that I haven't said before. And what happens is extraordinary, not only for you individually, because you're free in a different way. You're flying between the monkey bars. But other people are coming along. You know, they're helping you get to the next bar, which is gorgeous. It's beautiful. Um, so that's, a, that's the nutshell version of the last four years. And, you know, I'm happy to talk about what's changed in these last couple of weeks. Yeah. Um, I have uh, spent probably my whole life wanting for these things to be written on my tombstone. She was kind and she was generous. And I still long for that. I want people to think of me in those terms, but I had created that as an either or I can either be kind or generous, or I can be a business person, but I can't be both those things. And what this has shown to me is that that's a both and situation. I can be kind and generous and I can still, and I can create and maintain uh, powerful and healthy boundaries for myself. 
And, you know, going into this really dark place where there were no boundaries has been great uh, for helping me acknowledge those are necessary. I can't save the world. I have to first save myself. This health that I need has to be internally generated in a way that is not um, leaving me open or porous to the rest of the world. So that has been significant. I wrote a, a big piece of paper on my wall. I'm looking at it right now. It says, this is a business. And I need to treat my work as if it is a business and not fall prey to business partners who don't respect it in the same way, you know, given this, this recent history. Um, so boundaries have become really clear for me and really important for me. And the thing that I'm finding is that it is helpful to other people for me to say what my boundaries are. I have had a number of people say, thank you for being so honest and for letting me know. Um, I'll give you one very simple example. On Facebook, a lot of people um, take the opportunity when I post something to argue with me. <laughs> and some people argue in a constructive way, and that's fantastic. I love hearing other points of view. And some people simply don't, as you know. Mm -hmm. um, and I have come to the place where what I will say to the, the people who don't argue uh, constructively is a very simple sentence, two sentences. Thank you for your perspective. You have been heard. And that, for me, is the letting go of this tug of war. The most powerful person in a tug of war is the person who does not pick up their end of the rope. So I'm letting my rope go with that statement. What has been shocking to me is that almost 100% of the people I have said that to have come back to me and said, thank you for listening. Now, that wasn't my intention. I never imagined. I thought they would argue some more. But what a powerful statement. Thank you for listening. And you have been heard. Because I believe we all want to be heard and seen. Um, so that has been a really huge lesson for me. I can, I can say what my boundary is. I'm not engaging in this anymore. You have been heard. And that other person can feel respected in some way by the fact that I'm clear about what my boundaries are. So that's been a powerful learning for me. You know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, I've had, you know, a handful of people in the last few weeks come here and, and talk a little bit about depression. And, you know, I personally dealt with a very weird depressive period in which, you know, a therapist is like, I finally have a diagnosis for you after eight months. He said adjustment disorder with anxiety and depression based on, mm. you know, a lot of extenuating circumstances. And, uh, one of the things that has been really interesting to me as I've sort of seen, you know, what happens uh, on the internet and sort of this public life that we have on display is the stigma that comes with people going through dark times. And mm -hmm. uh, the fact that we're not very forgiving of the fact that, you know, our heroes and role models are human and that they're flawed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like when we see them in a darker light, it's not pretty and we're not kind about it. Right. Which there, I, you know, I'd just be really curious to hear your perspective on this. I mean, the, 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 other, the other thing is that when I look at this, one of the big challenges that I faced um, in the last year in, in which, you know, a business partner finally kind of clued me into this. He said, you know, the entire last year, your entire identity has been based on the performance of how the business is doing. And he said, mm. you need to separate those two things. 
And I, you know, because like, you know, and then I think about the, the quote that Eluna has, uh, in her book, the crossroads of should and must, where she says, you know, what if our work is so thoroughly autobiographical that we can't parse the product from the person Mm -hmm. and how you deal with the conflict of those two things or the tension between those two things. Wow. That's so beautiful that you said that. I mean, I think that's the thing that I'm asking myself. Um, I'm relationship driven. So if I am given a task, I feel pretty certain that I'm going to be more successful in that task by building relationships. And I know that about myself where I have, uh, and it's, it's a continuum. I am at the far end of that continuum so that I believe my borders and my boundaries and have disappeared in order to maintain relationship. And so what I'm finding is, uh, you know, probably like a pendulum, I'll go back too far the other way, (laughs) but somewhere in the middle, you know, going back to our conversation about the airplane ride, somewhere in that middle is where I will feel like my personal space is being respected and and my work is being respected. And those two things are not so intertwined. And you're right, my work is almost totally autobiographical. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, a, it's an interesting question. You know, I've been writing on Facebook about uh, public figures who we denigrate when they do fall. And I think there's, um, there's a great, uh, we have a great propensity to do that, like you said. We, we love the drama of that. And... I think as individuals, we first have to examine our own take on that. Why are we so much in the judgment place? To go back to my analogy from before, why can't we just open ourselves to learning about who that person is and how does one statement define somebody or not? Um, So I, I think I find myself even on Facebook saying, let's have a constructive conversation about this. What is this raising for you? As opposed to, wow, can you believe that? That's horrible. Because I don't think that helps us as individual people learn. In terms of depression, you know, I went through these four years silently. I didn't, um, very few people would have known that I was depressed. And you're right. I mean, part of that is, how does this jive with my happy business self? How does this jive with the work that I've put into the world? And then I, I finally realized I'm suffering a deeper pain because I am split. And in order to be authentic and true to myself, in order to let this go, I have to make it public. You know, I have to say, here's the thing. And, uh, you know, do I lose people as a result of that? Maybe. I've also lost people because, you know, uh, I advocate for my gay and lesbian friends. I don't think those people are my audience. And that's what I'm becoming really clear about. My audience is not the world. Yeah. And I used to think it was because I thought, oh, everybody can benefit from living more intentionally. And they can, but that's not my audience. That's not my market. And that's been really powerful. That's another boundary. Mm-hmm. And that's been really powerful to, uh, to acknowledge. You know, it, it's interesting. I, uh, I get, you know, emails from listeners every now and then, or people who will contact us and make guest recommendations and, and things like that. And one of, of the people that contacted me said, you know, I really appreciate those moments when you're being a bit more open and a bit more vulnerable with mm-hmm. the people who are listening. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I think it's the same as the people who respond by saying thank you for listening. You're honoring people with a story of yourself as a human being. And I think we're insulting people by not doing that. Um, I'll give you an example. I, I told my psychiatrist who's been helping me through this period, I said, you know, I, I always try and help people. You know, people are constantly coming to me for help, and I appreciate that. I, I do feel like I can help people. Um, and he reflected back to me. He said, do you think at some level there's, you're insulting people by imagining that they can't help themselves? And part of his prescription, which he wrote out really beautifully, was you can support and encourage people, but do not help them. And I thought, that's beautiful because that's another boundary. I can support you and I can encourage you and I can hear you and I can see you, but I don't need to fix you. Because what I'm saying by fixing you is you're broken. And I don't want to be saying that to people. And so, and seriously, Shereen, this is all in the last month. So I'm, I'm really excited about, well, what do I discover about myself and my own desire to fix things when I simply sit as witness to somebody else's pain and say, I hear you and I see you and I'm right here with you. Um, that's a significant difference than here's what you should do. Here's what I would do. That's a much more um, egocentric space to be in. And, and I teach and I taught uh, last night a writing class and we're looking at, um, at some work of Alan Seal who talks about these four levels of story and the first two are drama oh my god can you believe what she said I can't believe she said that the second one is fix it well here's what she should do and those are lower forms of story the higher forms of story which is where I am every day consciously now trying to get to are choice and opportunity okay this this situation raises lots of choices for myself and this person not only judge or learn, but other ones. And what are the opportunities in this? And you will find, as I have found in this class that I'm teaching, that that, that intentional conscious moment of saying, I'm in drama, I don't want to be in drama, I'm in fix it, I don't want to fix this, takes you to a very different level of conversation. It deepens it immediately. And so that's where I'm, that's one thing I've learned. And that's where I'm trying to go. Yes, the four years have been horrible. I have lost an enormous amount of money, focus, a lot of things. I made choices that brought me here. And I can make new choices to get myself out of it. And there are these huge opportunities for me if I make some changes that are healthy for myself. So I don't know if that four levels is helpful. It has been really helpful for me. Um, I think it's also different, if I get to say this, between being vulnerable and talking about your story at those first two levels mm -hmm. than it is talking about it at the top two levels. Because my story of depression or PTSD or anything, if I put it out there as, woe is me, here's my terrible story, um, here, you know, help me fix it, that's a hugely different conversation than I say, Here's the situation. I'm going to be as honest and transparent about it as I can. Here's what I see as my choices, and here are the opportunities that this has provided for me. It's kind of what you're saying. Like, what have you learned? You know? Yeah. Um, wow. Well, let's do this. <laughs> let's shift gears a little bit. And okay. let's start talking about this, because one of the things that you said was when the 37 days blog started, mm -hmm. you wanted to start writing in a very different voice. 
and to leave the story of who you were, your failures, the reality uh, versus, mm-hmm. you know, the version before. And I want to talk about that in more depth. Um, okay. One, I want to talk about your own experience and your own process with that and how it's led you through this evolution into where you're at today, as well as how we start to do that in our own work and our own lives. Okay. Uh, I had written I had written two business books, uh, one of which was a Fortune magazine best business book for the year it came out. And in both cases, when those cartons of books came from my publisher, I opened the boxes and thought to myself, I don't feel anything. I feel nothing looking at these books. And it felt like I was having an out-of-body experience. Like, I know I had written it, and yet it didn't connect to me. It was, it was the clever me, and I think this is a... Now that I'm talking to you, this is a refrain. I'm really smart, and I can be really clever, and I can write really well. And that does not mean that I am connecting to a story that is really important to me. But that is what I have been rewarded for for a long part of my life. You're really smart. Let's make you a vice president. Let's have you write this book. So I think there's a danger in in being seduced by the rewards that come with doing something you're really good at, but that you don't emotionally connect with. So that's part one. That second book came out the year that my stepfather died. And so the two, two of those events, the lack of feeling or feeling disconnected from this work and the, the very tangible idea of something we all know, but don't feel every day that life is short, that perfect storm (laughs) uh, led me to a place that said, what am I doing? Like, what, what am I doing with my life? So that was a moment of, of real clarity for me. And also what took me back to a place of really paying attention to writing and words and the meanings of words and the symbols that make up the words. It was a very, very rich time for me um, to, to shift that to a more personal space, to say this, this is not my work in the world. I'm really good at it. Fortune magazine thinks I am, mm-hmm. but this is not my work in the world. And so that was a significant shift. So in our own lives uh, and our own stories, how do we start to make those kinds of shifts? Mm, yeah, I forgot that was the second part of your question. Um, well, let's go back to your, your question earlier about crisis as catalyst. Um, you can wait for crisis. And I will tell you that if you wait and you're on the first day of your last 37, you won't have time um, to make the change that you need to make in your life. So for me, that 37 days became really a tangible symbol of life is short. And that we as human beings have a capacity to shift our story anytime we want to. We don't have to live the story that we're living. Um, And that we inherit and we believe a lot of stories other people tell us. And in some cases, like me, I couldn't imagine another story. I was very successful being clever and being smart. Why would I I change that? So maybe the first step is to say to yourself, um, what is my legacy? My legacy was private. I only had one intention in writing that blog. I never had an intention of a book or a successful blog. I felt really urgently, I could die next week in a plane crash. I want my kids to know me in a different way. 
So I think uncovering um, the yearning that we have. Uh, Robert Olin Butler is a writer who has said that story is a yearning meeting a series of obstacles. And the obstacles, which we try like hell to run away from, are actually the thing that moves the story forward. You can't have a story move forward without that clash. So while I think as adults we try to minimize the obstacle or we resist the obstacle, we actually push against it, a, a more um, a, a way that will get us closer back to our yearning is actually to embrace it and to learn from it. So another step might be, what are my obstacles right now? And what can I learn from each one of them? How can I embrace it as opposed to um, kill it, push it away? So that's a beginning. I, ha I have a choice points model that I, I look at every day. It's on my wall. And I realize at every moment with every obstacle I face, I have choices. I can push against it. I can embrace it. I can judge it. I can learn from it. Um, and I think having that kind of a, a, a mindset that says, my, my goal is to walk with fear. It is hand in hand. It's not to push it away. Um, I don't want to battle it. I don't want to kill it. I don't want to, I want to learn from it. And that's a very different mindset, I think, than, than how we usually think about obstacles. But if you, if you think about Little Red Riding Hood, Little Red Riding Hood needs the wolf to be a compelling story. That's the obstacle. And if we didn't have that obstacle, there is no compelling story. At the end of these choices that we make, we are either investing our energy in the yearning or in the obstacle. So you can make choices that invest your energy heavily in the obstacle, and that would be drama and fixing it, or you can invest your energy in the yearning that really underlies all that, that you're, you're moving toward, and that is choice and opportunity. So that's how that all fits together in my head. Um, so I think asking yourself, what is my yearning? And honestly, it's hard to define. I think we, most of us, cannot clearly say. But imagine your life as a movie. In a movie, you know what the yearning is. He has to get to Tibet, right? That's the yearning. And all these things happen to keep him from Tibet, hopefully that he learns from but he still invests in the yearning, not in getting caught up in the obstacles. And the same is true of our lives. So really articulate what is my core yearning? What are the obstacles? How am I addressing those obstacles? Because probably we're resisting them. How could I embrace them? And am I investing in the obstacles in my life or in the yearning? That, that would be a starting place. Wow. Uh, so one second to last question before we start wrapping things up. Okay. One of the things you had mentioned earlier, uh, was this idea of you're really smart and you should mm -hmm. dumb it down. And I'm interested in how that's manifested and played itself out in your life and your work. <laughs> uh, um, I couldn't let you off the hook on that one. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, there's a big sigh there. I believe it has been extremely difficult for me to stand in my own power. Um, I minimize my work in the world in a lot of different ways. And 
I lower, and I'm using a theater term here, I'm not using it the way we usually think about it. I lower my status a lot. I can see it a lot in the beginning of speeches. I lower my status because I'm uncomfortable being the, the, the guru or the smart person. I want everyone, and part of this is my work, I want everyone to know that they have these choices too. So I see it play out a lot. I see it play out in, um, yeah, a lot. <laughs> I'm just in the middle of really figuring this out, like in the last two weeks, how this plays out in my work. And I think the most concise thing I can say is I do not stand in my own power. It is very uncomfortable for me to do that. So that actually raises another question. If people are uncomfortable standing in their own power, do you have any guidance for them if they're feeling exactly what you're feeling? I believe that we set up... um, uh, opposing things a lot in our Western culture, we binaries, we set up male, female, good, bad, up, down, black, white, a lot. I think we set up those binaries in terms of power, not power. And I don't think that's true anymore. I think there's a continuum of comfort and a place that we can even quietly stand in our power I don't believe that we need to buy into a particular way that power looks. Uh, I don't think it needs to be loud. I don't think it needs to be moving its hands a lot. You know, I, I think to, to see all of this as a continuum is a healthier way. And to realize, here's my comfort space. What story am I telling that puts me in that place? And the story for me is I want to connect And I want to do what I was told to do as a kid. I don't want to make people feel less than. I almost always don't want to speak on a stage. So I think the first piece for me, and honestly, I'm just in the beginning of this, is to tease apart those stories. Okay, what's below that? And what's why don't you want to stand on a stage? What's below that and what's below that? And I'm just in the beginning process of figuring that out for myself. But I think it's a worthwhile. Because what, what we are is made up of stories. And some of them we have chosen and some of them we haven't chosen. But to be really clear about all those stories means that we can divest ourselves of the ones that are not serving us now. And I think that takes a lot of exploration. All right. So I have one final question for you, which is Mm -hmm. how we finish all our interviews uh, at the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I believe it is really simple. Um, I believe it is the fact that people can put down their clever and pick up their ordinary. Because I believe in our ordinary, we are our most potent selves. And my ordinary is not yours. So what I see as extraordinary about you, you may say to yourself, oh, that's just how life is. That's how I am. All of us do that. That is also an act of diminishment of who we are. 
And it's also a story of needing more. I need to earn something. Um, so really putting down your clever and picking up your ordinary and seeing it as potent is what I think makes people unmistakable. Wow. Well, Patty, uh, this has just been beautiful. Um, it really has. Can, can you call me every day and ask me these questions <laughs> so, that I can, so I can fast forward through all this crap that I'm not going through? Uh, no, it, it really, I love, love, love conversations like this because they give you so much to think about. You know, it's, it's funny the one of the, the weird sort of, you know, semi complaints or pieces of feedback we got in a survey was more practical how to advice. And I am completely adamant that we don't offer people a map and that we mm. offer people a compass and conversations like this do exactly that. And that's why I, I love hope so. so much. Yeah, I hope so. So I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us. My pleasure. Anytime. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. If you like what you heard, the greatest compliment you could give us is to share the show with a friend and let people know what you think by leaving a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening to The Unmistakable Creative. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.